constantly asking too much of their body and they're spending so much time in a deficit that everything starts to downregulate. Their metabolic rate downregulates, their hormone function downregulates, their ability to preserve and add more lean muscle tissue is diminished. It's just not sustainable, not healthy. And I think more people need to hear the conversation on the other end of the spectrum. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey, hey, Bettys, welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. Tis me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today I have a conversation with Robert Sykes, the keto savage himself, on all things building a physique and doing it with a ketogenic diet. So you all know me by now. I love to lift weights and I love to lift heavy. Uh, there are some differing schools of thought in terms of what it takes to build muscle. Uh, um, and many of which you've heard on the show. We've had guests on the show that prefer a higher protein diet. There have been guests on the show who have preferred a carnivore diet. There have been guests on the show that prefer a, if it fits your macros approach. And today's conversation is a ketogenic style uh, approach to bodybuilding. And Robert's story is that he had tr followed that traditional, you know, what he calls bro dieting uh, approach to nutrition, where he would, I, I like to call this brick in it, right? It's like the chicken and the broccoli and like, and on repeat, right? Or like chicken and rice, that kind of thing. So this sort of poster boy, uh, stereotypical bodybuilder eating the chicken and rice and, and, and broccoli and rinse and repeat. And until he found, he listened to a podcast with Tim Ferriss and Dom D'Agostino, who's also been a show, a guest on our show. And I actually remember this podcast because it really, it changed my life in, in many ways. But Robert talks about listening to this and saying, oh, well, maybe I'll, I'll try the ketogenic approach and was able to heal some of the, we'll say, disordered eating patterns, uh, a terrible relationship with food, hormones that had taken a nosedive, uh, sort of zombie mode that happens when you are uh, restricting uh, carbohydrates over uh, the long term. So really was able to heal a lot of that through the ketogenic diet and has continued doing keto in both build phases or what some might call off season um, and on his cuts as well. So we talk about in this show exactly how to do that. So we talk about the importance of build phases, the importance of a reverse diet, which uh, if you are a member of my uh, practitioner groups, you know that I'm talking about reverse dieting all the time, how we can heal our women from these 1200 calorie diets. Um, we talk about uh, many other things in response. So we talk about carb backloading or refeeds, the difference between the two. We talk about how to train for uh, a competition or just to build the physique that you want. And he talks 
talks about his training regime, talks about how to uh, build or muscle hypertrophy. We talk about the metabolic stresses of training, time under tension. We talk about cardio. We talk about fasted workouts. We talk about the whole shebang. Um, and we talk about his need for, uh, you know, seeing a need in the market or a lack in the market for ketogenic products that just did not turn to goo and, uh, and his own, uh, product called keto brick. I think this is going to be a really useful conversation for men and women alike, but in particular, my ladies who may still be apprehensive either about the ketogenic diet or about building a physique and putting on lean muscle mass. We talk about all of it, how to do it. If you're a woman, he's coached many, many, many clients, including my friend, Dr. Jamie Seaman. Uh, and that's actually the reason why uh, he's on the show is I saw that he coached her. I reached out to her. I reached out to him. Um, and, uh, and here we go. So small world ladies, but please, without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Rob. Robert Sykes, the Keto Savage. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause. And mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause. And there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. The Keto Savage, Robert Sykes, welcome to the show. I'm so happy that you're here today. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be chatting with you. Yeah, I'm so excited to be chatting with you as well. I have been very much engulfed in the ketogenic diet and principles from a female centric perspective from a brain uh, metabolic perspective, of course, very much inspired by uh, Dom D'Agostino, who's been on the show uh, as well, has been sort of like a, you know, a mentor from afar for me for, for many years. And it was a you know pleasure to have him on the show, but I wanted, I reached out to you over Instagram because I love your content. You're one of the only ketogenic all like all the time ketogenic, uh, off season, on season, uh, bodybuilders. And I really wanted to get you on to really talk about some of the principles of the ketogenic diet, how we can actually build muscle, which I think certainly, you know, quite a bit about being a bodybuilder, um, and wanted to really just get start maybe with, with our conversation with your origin story. So I know you weren't always keto, uh, in the bodybuilding world. So maybe walk us through, you know, your, how you found bodybuilding and why, and then how you found uh, the ketogenic diet as an augment. Yeah, totally. So I started bodybuilding, I believe, as a junior in high school. I was 115 pounds. And I was just like the scrawny little guy that people made fun of and picked on, you know. Um, but my uncle was a, he's kind of the guy in the family that was just, you know, more physically fit. He just looked like he worked out. He had this outgoing, boisterous personality. And I kind of wanted to emulate that. So I started picking his brain as to 
how he got bigger muscles. Uh, and he kind of took me under his wing and showed me how to do bicep curls and just super rudimentary stuff. Uh, so that, I took that and ran with it. Um, for the first year of me working out, I had no gym access. So I was fashioning uh, pieces of gym equipment. I had, you know, basically using tractor weights and pieces of steel laying around the shop. And that was my, my gym for the first year, year and a half of me working out. And I just fell in love with the whole sport. I fell in love with the ability to, to transform the way you look based off of your ability to put in the work. Um, and I was really fascinated by the nutrition. Of course, when I started, this was long before I knew about keto. So I was doing all the traditional bro dieting approach to nutrition. I would eat really, really high protein, very high carbohydrate, most of which was processed carbohydrate, very minimal dietary fat because I feared that would clog my arteries and make me have a lot of extra body fat. Uh, so basically just did everything wrong and followed the traditional protocol for nutrition based off of what all the magazines were telling me. Um, and I saw success with that in the sense that I was able to still get very lean and compete at a competitive level. But uh, I developed a bunch of disordered eating tendencies and my relationship with food really took a turn for the worst. After my first show, I lost like 80 pounds in 12 weeks for that show. And then after the show was over, I kind of went down a dark path of just binging and purging. And then all of that uh, led me to, and I realized there had to be a better way. So I kind of stumbled upon keto by accident following a carbohydrate backloading protocol and realized that I felt better without the carbohydrates. So I phased those out and have been pretty much strict keto ever since. That was in 2015, I believe. I think I, you mentioned Dom Agostino. I think I heard a podcast with him and Tim Ferriss back in 2014 or 15. That was my first introduction as to you know what keto was. And from there on, I pretty much never looked back because I've just felt better. I've performed better. My relationship with food has all improved since adopting a ketogenic diet. And since I've to perform so much better. I haven't really felt any reason to deviate from the diet. So hence me being strict keto now for seven plus years. I actually remember that podcast that you're like, he was on Tim's show uh, mm -hmm. a bunch of times. Uh, but the first one I remember listening to it and I was like, one day I'm going to start a podcast and one day I'm going to get Dom on and we're going to talk about keto because that was around the same time that I was discovering the ketogenic diet. And I think I told you in the pre-chat, I also uh, was a figure competitor. So competed in the not quite bodybuilding, but, you know, figure sort of a step, we'll say under bodybuilding, you know, step above bikini kind of in between bikini and, and, uh, and bodybuilding and follow the same kind of thing that you're describing, like higher protein, uh, higher carbohydrate, moderate to low fat. And then all of that sort of, you know, everything titrates down as you get, you know, prep month and then, and then peak week, but mm -hmm. very much hyperphagic after the show. So for the months and months and months that I spent, let's say in the gym and weighing out every little morsel of food, um, you know, within two weeks post-show, I felt like all of those gains or my, uh, you know, perceived leanness, let's say, you know, the striations, striations in my shoulders and all the, like, it was all gone. Like it was, I was just, it was just like I had started from the beginning again. And it was so discouraging. Um, and that was, that was back in 2008. So it was like before I had children, all of that. And I've sort of been flirting with the idea of coming back, you know, as a mom of three now and doing, doing a show, but doing it a little differently because it really, yeah. I had issues with my liver, like my, my, you know, I run labs after and like AST and ALT, like my, uh, you know, my, some of my labs on my liver were just off, like completely off from the water manipulation. And we'll kind of get into maybe all of the things that you can do wrong in a show. I mean, I placed third, but it was like, as like, what did I give up for this trophy? You know, um, yeah, it's, 
Yeah. It's unfortunate because I feel like that is more often the case than not. I feel like so many competitors, you know, describe something similar at post-show. They have this really negative rebound. They gain a bunch of weight. They have the terrible relationship with food afterwards. Their body takes a toll. Their hormones take a toll. And I feel like there's a lot of people that are naysayers to the ketogenic diet pointing to all these competitors and saying, hey, look, everybody's doing this with a high protein. Obviously, you know, they're doing something right, but they don't really talk about the other end of the spectrum, which is that all these people that are doing it this traditional way are all suffering these negative consequences post-show. And I feel like there's got to be a better alternative to that. Yeah. And I think that there's something also to be said about, um, and I, I will, I will put myself in this category as well. I think what, you know, the original reason, reason why I fell in love with fitness was because I wanted to look good. It's like, let's just be honest. I wanted to look good in a bikini. I wanted to look good in my shorts, all of that. But I think that when you have sort of this like deadly triad, let's say of like poor self-esteem, maybe some disordered eating tendencies, uh, you know, and that can be anywhere on the spectrum as you, as you mentioned, and then maybe some unresolved trauma or something from their past, you put all of those things together. And if a lot of people who find fitness in many ways, the competitive aspect to fitness, like doing a figure show or bodybuilding or whatever can really bring out if you're doing it, maybe in a traditional way that doesn't support, you know, you know, your, your tendency towards uh, disordered eating, I think it can really mess with you. And we get this orthorexic type of militants, like this orthorexic type of, I have to do it this way. I have to fast for 24 hours and eat one meal, or I have to, you know, do it this way. And I think that it can actually um, make the problem for these individuals who we call fit influence, fitness influencers, mm-hmm. right. It can make it even worse. And of course, propagates the problem to the rest of the population. Yeah, I completely agree. I feel like if you're going to step on stage anyways, you're probably in this extremist category. You're willing to do things that a lot of people aren't willing to do. Yeah. And then you take that to the nth degree. And if there's no show date looming, like once that show is over and you cross the finish line, so to speak, there's nothing to really keep you within a healthy range of eating styles. And that's why a lot of people totally go off the rails. I mean, after my first show, I mean, I don't even want to know how many calories I put down within 24 hours. And I literally gained like 20 pounds in that 24 hour span. And I feel like we just need to change the conversation from, you know, that extreme mentality for that very finite period of time and then make it a healthier lifestyle in nature. Not that you have to compete and be that lean, you know, year round, but to have a healthy range that you're, you know, staying within in your off season, in your, in your cutting phase, so that you're never having to put your body through so much, you know, trauma to get to that level of conditioning. Yeah. Well said, well said and totally agree. Let, let's talk a little bit about the, well, uh, you know, maybe I'll say the yin and the yang of training because everybody sees, as we were just mentioning, everyone sees that super lean, super ripped physique. When you get on stage, you know, I remember leading up to my figure and I was like, oh my God, I'm getting up on stage and people are going to judge my body in a bikini. Like what have I gotten myself into? Right. So you, 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 uh, you know, let's, let's think about, um, the cut, right. You have to have some sort of caloric deficit to lead up to that, um, to that point. However, what I think, as you were mentioning, what's left out of the conversation is the surplus or the build phase, because one of the things that I run into at least with, at least the type of clients that I type, uh, you know, tend to attract, which is just, you know, me, (laughs) like different, you know, different versions of me is, can't I just be in a caloric deficit indefinitely? Can't I just always be at, you know, I got down to my shows like 8% body fat. So for a woman, you know, as you might imagine, like amenorrheic and like, you know, I got down really lean, very lean for, uh, for a female. Um, So can we talk a little bit about 
the build. Let's talk about why this is so important. And then the oscillation or the importance of the oscillation between spending, uh, I would argue, more time in a build or caloric, at least maintenance, but potentially surplus. And then what, you know, how much time we should be spending in a cut or, or a caloric restrictive phase. Yeah, I think. I think this this needs to be talked about at nauseum because I feel like it's not talked about near enough. And I feel like this is where so many of the issues arise with regards to hormonal health and metabolic function. Um, so I like to think of it in terms of, you know, for me as a natural athlete, I'm spending between four and six months worth of time cutting down for a show. After that, I'll spend two or three months reverse dieting back up to my new maintenance intake. And then from there, I'm in a caloric surplus for the next one to sometimes three years. So I'm spending significantly more time in that building phase than I'm in that cutting phase. And I feel like the exact opposite is what holds true for most people, because what, what is talked about, what is sexy to post about on Instagram is how lean you're looking, you know, your striated glutes and ripped abs and people don't really talk about the off season, uh, that building phase, but that's where you're, that's where you add more lean muscle tissue. That's where you ramp up your metabolic rate. That's where you improve your hormonal function. And if people are not spending ample time in that building phase, they're just chronically and constantly asking too much of their body. And they're spending so much time in a deficit that everything starts to downregulate their metabolic rate downregulates their hormone function downregulates their ability to preserve and add more lean muscle, muscle tissue is diminished. It's just not sustainable, not healthy. And I think more people need to hear the conversation on the other end of the spectrum about spending that time in that building phase. And committing and sort of surrendering to the process, because I think that a lot of times when you go into a build, what is predictable and necessary is weight gain. Like you are going to be gaining lean muscle, as you mentioned, but you're also going to be putting on some body fat. And I think that we need to maybe as a, as a society, uh, just become a little bit more comfortable with that, that you are, the weight on the scale is going to go up. And if that's the only metric that you have, which is if you're looking at the scale only, it would be very easy for you to get freaked out, to drop, like to be like, okay, I I've gained, you know, in the past, however many weeks, two weeks, I've gained a pound, two pounds, five pounds. I'm going to stop this and get back into my CR, into my cut so that I can get back to that weight that I was. So we don't actually give ourselves enough of the runway. You know, you were talking about a one or two year build phase, which I think, first of all, I think, I mean, just that number for most people is unheard of in terms of weight loss. It's like, I want it now. I want it in seven days. I had three salads. Where's the body? So I think even just saying one to two years in a build, I think is so useful uh, for for my audience uh, to hear. But the other thing that I would love for you to, to maybe double click on and expand on is what happens during a build phase, because you are going to gain weight. And if you don't stick to the program and you're like, oh man, I'm just getting freaked out. And you sort of, you know, uh, you, you get a little frazzled, you can jump off and, and you're constantly going back to trying to maintain how you looked when, or, you know, your weight or your measurements or your photos or whatever, uh, when you were in that caloric restricted phase. Yeah. I feel like, you know, for me, I'm always within about 20, 25 pounds of competition weight. I don't feel like you have to have this crazy obscene amount of bulk in your building phase. Like the first time I, I you know, built and had building phase for a competition, I got to 230 pounds and I'm five, seven, five, eight. So that was an unnecessary book. It was not needed. And I had to lose 80 pounds in 12 weeks in order to be competitive on stage. I don't do that anymore. Now I stay within a much healthier range of 20 to 25 pounds. And I feel like 
my body fat now, I'm about at a 15% body fat. So for me, with my amount of lean muscle tissue, I still feel good about how I look. I still feel confident about how I look in my own skin in that building phase. Now, I prefer the way I look when I'm leaner. I prefer the way I look when I'm, you know, sub 10% body fat. But I also recognize that my ability to build as much lean muscle tissue in that you know, building phase is not going to be optimized if I'm constantly single digit body fat. And I feel like if you're only looking at the scale as a metric and a proxy for your progress, you're going to be disheartened. Whereas if you start to look at other measures, such as the amount of lean muscle tissue you built, and honestly, your strength markers, I feel like both males and females, if they start focusing more on their strength markers in their building phase, and they can get excited about seeing, you know, the amount of weight they're able to pull with a deadlift or the amount of weight they're able to squat, if they see that continually rise, they can feel confident that they're doing something you know, right. And things are moving in the right direction. And then when they do lean down at some point in the future, they're going to look better for it. Had they, because they did that building phase, that productive building phase, had they just, you know, stayed in that chronic deficit, they're not going to look much different. I think one of the main, you know, issues I see is people spending so much time in a deficit and then transitioning back into a cut too quickly is that they wind up losing lean mass in that cutting phase. And then if they don't give themselves ample time back in the building phase, their metabolism never really upregulates, up but then they also lose that lean muscle tissue and they wind up looking worse and worse and worse on stage. Uh, and that's the exact opposite of what you would want to do from a sustainable bodybuilding standpoint. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that when you, at least for me as well, because I have that sort of extremist, I'm like, I'm going to get up on a stage and let just judge me on in my bikini. Like, just tell me how I'm doing. So I tend to have that extremist type of personality as well. And I think that for me, what's been most helpful is when I shifted um, my focus to, so always, I'm always looking at the scale, always looking at measurements, let's say waist to hip ratio, for example, I'm always looking at blood markers. How's my thyroid doing? Where's my estrogen levels? All the things, liver markers. But we, in the gym, when I started focusing on performance, like, as you mentioned, how is my squat improving? Am I able to, you know, on a five rep, let's say how, how much, you know, week over week, month over month is that weight going up? Now, of course I've been lifting for many years, so it's always like, it doesn't, I don't jump as fast as I used to, you know, like we all love those, those newbie gains, right? So when you first start training, you know, your body is remodeling at a very, very rapid rate. Once you have been training for a while, of course, your, uh, your gains are, we'll say slower. Um, but it is really, it's almost like a gamification. Like I almost have like this little competition with myself, you know? So it's like every month, have I improved my squat? Is my deadlift changing? Do I still feel like my form is on point when I add five or 10 or whatever it is pounds to the bar. And I think that that shift can also help to overcome in some ways that um, hypervigilant orthorexic type of behavior, right? Because if we're looking at these non-scale victories, like what are you doing in the gym? What's your bench press? What's your squat? Are you pull, are you doing pull-ups? Because every woman I think should be able to pull up their own weight. I think that those, those marker, and then other, other things like sleep and libido, like, do you have a sex drive? Uh, that's, I think that's really, really important uh, for us to be focusing on as well and not just the weight. hundred percent. I feel like if people don't focus on those other metrics, then it would be nearly impossible for them to be able to justify a building phase because what other metric do they have to look at and know that they're making progress? Whereas if you can see a tangible increase in lean muscle tissue via the weight that you're pushing in the gym, you can feel confident that things are trending in the right direction. I feel like that at the end of the day, people need to have some tangible, you know, feedback that they're doing something right. And if you're only looking at the scale, not even focusing on your 
body composition and what that scale weight is consisting of, then you're, you're never really going to spend any time in a surplus because it's always going to go up if you're in a surplus, uh, even if it's just water weight and you know food weight from eating more. But I think having that and being conscious of that, having those proxies for progress outside of just scale weight is paramount. And I feel like the more that conversation is had, the more people are focusing on those metrics, uh, the more sustainable people will find you know, body recomposition as a whole. Great. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. Element T also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. So let's talk in your, in your book, you talk about this, this concept of a caloric runway, like having enough of a caloric runway to be able to properly fuel the training demands that you have. Can you explain a little bit about, I mean, that we're, we're kind of dancing around it in our conversation now, but just to define it in, uh, you know, in keto savagery terms, if you will, what does, what does it mean to have a caloric runway to be properly fueling our, our workouts? Yeah. So from a high level, I'll just use myself as an example. So my maintenance intake is around 3000 calories based off of my activity and how I'm functioning throughout the day. I can consume about 3000 calories and my weight and composition will hold pretty stable. If I was to do a prep right now and give myself four to six months worth of time to lean down and I'm gradually tapering calories throughout that entire four to six month span, then it's important that I start at that higher intake of 3000 calories to be able to have enough caloric runway, so to speak, to whittle away on those calories over the next four to six months. I see so many people wanting to lose body fat, but they're only consuming a thousand calories to begin with, which means for them to take several months and slowly chip away that caloric intake, they don't really have anywhere left to go. Because if you're only consuming a thousand calories and you're needing to lose body fat and strip away some caloric intake, you don't really want to be functioning on a day-to-day basis at sub 1000 calories. I mean, if you look at uh, you know, Holocaust victims back during the war. I mean, they were consuming more than that on a day-to-day basis. So you shouldn't really be operating at the same intake that they were. Um, so I feel like having enough time in a surplus is going to ensure that your metabolic rate has elevated to the point where you're able to maintain a healthy composition while consuming adequate calories so that when it comes time to taper those calories, you're not going to be sub 1000 on your intake. And then how long do you usually, so you mentioned that you prep for a show for about four to six months. So in that four to six month time, you're now titrating the calories down. What is, what is the, you know, velocity, if you will, or speed with which you're bringing down those calories? Is it very slow? Like, what does it look like typically for you? It changes based off of how I'm looking week to week, but I mean, I'll typically keep it within 50 calories or so on average. There may be weeks where I hold them constant. There may be weeks where I get a little bit more aggressive and drop hundred calories, but usually about 25 to 75 calories a week on average in that taper. Um, And I feel like by doing that for one, it's more sustainable. Like a lot of people will start a cut and they'll automatically hack off, you know, 700 calories. But when you're looking at your meals for the day, it's much easier to wrap your head around removing 
you know, one whole egg as opposed to one whole meal. Right. And I feel like the more sustainable you can make it and, and kind of help yourself from a psychological standpoint, the more you're going to be able to endure the length of the prep. Yeah. And that's, you know, 25 calories is like a bite of something, you know, it's like, yeah, we're well, just going to take one bite less on your, you know, at each meal, that's completely doable. And as you mentioned, the cycle, I mean, one of the, one of the things that has kept me from going back to, uh, to, to figure is the, uh, we'll say psychological warfare, you know, cause I remember just literally consuming asparagus and, you know, some lean fish, whatever it was, tilapia scallops. I can't remember now, um, you know, leading up like that all month long. And I remember even on the other side of the diet, I was like, I never want to see an asparagus again. And to this day, I don't have as many asparagus as I probably should, even though I love the vegetable, but I just have this sort of negative association with it. And I think that the psychological aspect to competition and also adhering, whether you ever decide, to compete or not, but even just adhering to a light, you know, adhering to a way of eating and a way of training that fits, you know, your lifestyle and, and the demands that you have, we never, well, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say never, but I, you know, I'll say that most of the time, most programs don't account for the psychological well-being of the individual, as you said, like, they'll just, you know, it's like, all right, 700 less calories and go. Mm -hmm. Right. And this is such a, and, a, and when you get down to that a thousand calorie range, as you mentioned, like you have, where are you going to go? Like what, yeah. what you can't, you can't do any, your body, that metabolic adaptation that happens at a thousand calories anyway, is really not going to allow for you to lose any more adiposity. You're just going to be chipping away now at that hard earned muscle because it's going to sacrifice, your body will sacrifice that last 10 pounds, let's say of weight that you're trying to lose. It's going to take it away from your shoulders and your butt and your back, you know, and your biceps. It's not going to take it away from your, from your, you know, precious reserves. Right. Yeah. So we've been talking a little bit about, you know, the caloric deficit kind of leading up to the show. Uh, I think one of the more important things when we are thinking about post-show care is the reverse diet and how we can slowly bring ourselves back up to those maintenance calories. Because in a caloric deficit, of course, as you're very well aware, we have a tendency to put on a lot of fat if we're not careful because we've been in that extended caloric deficit for as long as we have. I think that there's a strategy and I talk about this. I teach a lot of clinicians about reverse dieting. These women, you know, that come to them that have been at these like 1200 calorie diets for years, how we can slowly sort of, and strategically, as you said, with the number that 25 to 75 calorie number week over week, start to increase their, their calories. So how do you look at reverse dieting? Let's say post-show, what does that look like? Um, and then is that like a, you know, we were talking about the caloric runway, uh, before how we sort of have enough of a caloric runway to titrate down. And now it's all about building that runway back up on the other side. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So like, whereas I'll be dropping calories by 25 to 50, 75 calories, potentially uh, in a cutting phase, when, when I get to that last little bit of a competition prep, like usually about six weeks before stepping on stage, I'll start implementing ketogenic caloric refeeds. And that's basically just a bolus of dietary fat and protein. Uh, and that's a refeed day. Typically it's one day a week. Sometimes I'll do two consecutive days. And basically I'll use those to kind of offer a metabolic boost, a psychological boost, just some benefit from, and honestly, just to make the, the lower calories more sustainable. Uh, but I'll also leverage those refeed days going into a reverse diet post show. Uh, and then what that looks like is I'll basically start scaling up the 
weekly, the daily calories, and then I'll start gradually de decreasing those refeed calories so that they more or less meet in the middle at some point, several weeks post-show. And then at that point, I'll just start increasing day-to-day -day calories uh, so that I get back up to my, my new maintenance intake and then eventually a slight surplus. But by having that measured approach, I'm able to just keep things much more within a healthy range post-show. I've actually got one client now that I've been working with for, for years. She's one of my longest lasting clients, but she has been reverse dieting from her previous show, which was 40 weeks ago now. So quite a bit of time post-show. And she has hardly put on any weight, but she's been able to increase her calories uh, significantly and her lean mass continues to increase. She's just been a really good example of what's possible when you diet back up very, very slowly. Uh, she's honestly dieted back up more slowly than we diet her down. And I feel like in seeing how her body's responded, uh, I've only seen positive come from it. I mean, you, you don't have to be that conservative with the increase. You can be a little bit more aggressive, but if you want to be that conservative and truly hold on to that conditioning as long as possible and then take advantage of the benefits that come with those higher calories, it's certainly possible to do so. And I feel like that's what I'm probably going to emulate next time I do my prep. Yeah, I, I love that because I think, and I love the idea of slow is steady. This is sort of, you know, if there's a through line on the better podcast, it's do everything slowly and play the long game, right? We talk about this with maximal aerobic function, and we're definitely going to talk about cardio today as well. I think this holds true in the nutrition space as well, like double or triple the amount of time that you have given yourself uh, that you set for yourself. Like if someone has a weight loss goal, let's say, or they have a strength goal or a body composition or recomposition goal, most people want it next week, next mm -hmm. month, you know, within the year. And I think if you, if you double or triple that, say, we're going to just do this over the course of the next year, like your client 40 weeks, like that's pushing up on a, you know, she's just, you know, nine months in, you know, I would say she's just short of a year there. Um, I think that that's, that's a really, really, really smart play. And in order to do it that precisely, you do have to be measuring your food, correct? Like you, if you're doing the 75 calorie bump, let's say week over week, like that has to, that's not, you're not eyeballing it at that point. Right. And she's, I mean, she's measuring everything to the T when I'm in a prep, I'm measuring everything to the T. Um, and I feel like some people really do well with that. Some people like to be incredibly measured in that regard. And, you know, to, to those people more power to them because they'll probably excel in the context of meal prepping as is often the case with bodybuilding. Um, when I'm in the building phase, I'll typically be a little bit more lax with the rigidity of my macronutrient calculations and measuring simply because by being a little bit more lax in the building phase, and as long as I'm getting enough calories, enough protein, then I can be much more strict in that cutting phase. Whereas if I was just tracked to that level of consistency, you know, never ending, that might lead to burnout for most. Um, so I kind of have that yin yang approach with regards to how detailed I'm tracking, but definitely when it comes to reaching the goal, initially, I try to be as, as consistent and concise as possible when it comes to tracking my, my daily intake. Yeah. Let's do a, let's do a slight left turn and let's talk a little bit about muscle building and how we build muscle on a ketogenic diet. Uh, I think that this has been, um, we'll say, argued, uh, maybe ad nauseum, uh, in the fitness space around what are the requirements for muscle protein synthesis? What are the requirements in terms of carbohydrate intake in terms of preventing 
the catabolic or, you know, muscle protein breakdown, let's say, and the role of insulin, uh, and, you know, to extension by extension, carbohydrates play in that. So what are your thoughts? I mean, obviously as a natural bodybuilder, you know, we've all, you know, we've seen pictures, I've seen pictures of you, you know, on, uh, on stage, very lean, you got a lot of muscle. Um, I think that there's been, uh, people that have said or commented like, oh, you got all that muscle kind of before you went keto, you know? So what, what do you say around, uh, and maybe we can talk a little bit about the, the mechanics and the physiology around muscle building when we are on a ketogenic diet. And maybe there is a modification of the ketogenic diet that you're, that you're following where it's maybe not moderate to low protein. It is a little bit higher. Like explain, explain what's going on uh, in terms of the macronutrient breakdown of a ketogenic diet and the ability to put on lean muscle mass. Yeah. So from a very, very high level, when it comes to building muscle on a ketogenic diet, the main thing that I'm trying to accomplish is simply eating and a caloric surplus, making sure I'm getting ample protein to rebuild uh, that tissue and ample dietary fat to fuel the workouts from an energy standpoint. And then from a workout training standpoint, just simply providing enough progressive overload to give my body reason to grow and add more muscle tissue. So like, that's it from a very high level view that the naysayers that, you know, comment on my post and say, you built all your muscle with carbs. They're not wrong. But that's simply because I did so much training before I ever even found the ketogenic diet. And then like you alluded to earlier in our conversation, once you've been training for quite some time and you have more muscle maturity, your ability to tap into those newbie gains is, is diminished. I mean, I put on 20 pounds largely, which was muscle my first year of training, but that's not going to happen after I've been training for five. 10 plus years. Um, and this is definitely the case with natural bodybuilding. I mean, if you look at any of the elite level natural bodybuilders, they're ecstatic if they're able to see a one or two pound increase in their stage weight, you know, every time they step on stage like that, that's kind of more realistic expectation than assuming that you're going to put on, you know, 15, 20 pounds of solid muscle. Uh, that is also the case as you age. But when it comes to the ketogenic diet and, and optimizing for muscle growth in that context, simply eating enough calories, eating enough protein and training hard enough is the main levers that you want to pull. Um, there's a lot of studies that show there being an advantage to carbohydrates with regard to adding more lean mass. But so many of these studies are skewed because they're looking at uh, lean mass counting, you know, just everything that is not fat mass. So when you eat a carbohydrate heavy diet, and you're going to have this, you know, super compensation of muscle glycogen, so to speak, which is going to measure an increase in lean mass. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you have more skeletal muscle mass. So really kind of comparing apples to apples is super important when looking at different ways to build muscle and different diets to do so. And so how do you structure your training? So your, your primary, so what, and or actually before we even get there, when we're talking about the macro split that you're following, is it like a 70, 20, 10? Like what is the, or is it more of like a quad, like it's 80 like what, what is the macronutrient breakdown typically for you? Yeah. So that changes quite a bit depending on what phase I'm in. When I'm in a building phase, it's pretty close to a one-to-one. -one. So one gram of protein per pound of, uh, uh, per, one gram of protein per gram of fat. So that winds up being about 69, 70% of my total calories coming from dietary fat. And that's a pretty sustainable intake for most. It's easier to find foods that kind of fit that macronutrient. Uh, distribution. When I'm in a prep, I'll start at a really high fat ratio of about 80%. And then I'll taper that dietary fat while simultaneously increasing my protein. So I find my own unique protein threshold. And from there, I'll start dropping both fat and protein. So my macronutrient ratios are constantly in a state of flux while I'm cutting. Uh, but in the building phase, they're typically pretty close to that one-to-one. 
Yeah. And you still, and when you're at that one-to-one, you're still going to get that thermic effect of food and you're all, it's, you know, you're having enough protein. So it's satiating. So it's not that you're not getting enough protein to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, which we know, you know, at the very minimum, you know, we're talking about uh, two to two and a half grams of, let's say leucine, which is an amino acid that's important in that MPS process. Um, but let's say equating to about 20 to 25 grams, let's say of protein per meal at a, at a base minimum, you're, you're easily getting that. Yeah, that's a really good point too, because I feel like so many people kind of what we're going, what we're talking about earlier is they're they're not having enough caloric runway at the onset. So if you're only consuming a thousand calories per se, you're trying to maximize your performance with a ketogenic macro split, then you're not really getting ample protein in that context. Because if you've only got a thousand calories to work with and 70% of those calories are coming from dietary fat, you're probably not getting ample uh, protein to, to, you know, make up for your lean mass. Whereas if you're taking in 3000 calories, 2,500 calories, uh, then you're able to maintain totally sufficient protein intake while still operating at a very high fat ratio. And so my question before that, I want to make sure that I don't forget to ask you is what does the training look like? We know that there's a, you know, a lot of ways to skin a cat, you know, we can have time under tension. There can be a metabolic stress to the muscle. What I like to call like finishers or dessert, right? <laughs> You're just mm-hmm. doing like reps on reps on reps. Um, what are some of the ways that you like to, uh, you know, your in your build phase, obviously the, 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 I would assume that the goal is one hypertrophy and two is, is strength. So how do you structure the, weight training, what is your splits like? And what does the, in, what, what does the programming itself look like? Yeah. So one, I, I kind of built out a split for myself that is basically uh, it's an eight day heavy hypertrophy split. So for every eight day window, I have six training days and two recovery days. Uh, in those six training days, each muscle group is basically getting targeted twice, one of which with a heavy focus and one of which with a hypertrophy focus. Uh, so kind of confusing, probably easier to, to draw that out uh, for a visual, but basically over the course of an eight day window, there's six training days, in which case every muscle group like legs, for instance, is getting targeted twice, one of which with, you know, a fewer repetitions, but heavier weights, the other, which being more of a slightly higher increase in, you know, total volume via, via more repetitions, but a slightly lighter weight. And honestly, I pretty much maintain that in the both the building phase and the cutting phase, a lot of people make the mistake of they they drastically change their training style when they transition into a caloric deficit because it's harder to train heavy and with more intensity. The problem is in the context of that caloric deficit, if you stop demanding that from your muscle tissue, like if you stop demanding that need to put in the work by training with less intensity, your body's going to become more catabolic catabolic and tap into that lean muscle tissue to make up the void of what you're missing with those calories. So continuing to demand that heavy workload from your muscles in the context of a deficit while harder is going to be one of the best things you can do to preserve the lean mass you've built throughout your building phase. And where do, if at all, exogenous ketones come into this? We know that ketones in general, uh, you know, there are many, but beta hydroxybutyrate is the one that we're all, you know, sort of more well-versed in more of an anti, more of a prevents, uh, you know, catabolic activity, let's say, do you supplement with exogenous ketones? Are you relying with the own, your own, uh, endogenously, endogenously produced, uh, ketones in, uh, in prep and in, in your build phase and in the cut phase? I don't really use them so much in a cut phase simply because I, I want to lean more heavily on my endogenous production of them. And when I'm in a caloric deficit, my ketones are through the roof anyways. Like I have very high circulating ketones uh, in a caloric deficit. I've been playing around with 
exogenous ketones uh, in the building phase simply because I don't feel as mentally sharp when I'm at a pretty su substantial uh, increase in calories. Um, and I like the way I feel with the exogenous ketones. So like, for instance, I've, I've got a whole bunch of those uh, ketone esters. So I've been supplementing with those prior to podcast recordings uh, and just things, things that require more mental bandwidth. And I feel like I've seen a benefit in that regard. Um, so I'll have exogenous ketones then, but I don't really use them so much from a performance standpoint okay, with regard great. to my training. I feel like Wonder Woman when I take them. Like I'm always, if I do, I, I tend to work out fasted. It's just not for any, it's just when it fits into my schedule. Like the, when I train is in the morning. And if I don't train in the morning before it's time to get the kitties, you know, off to camp or whatever it is, uh, or off to school, then, you know, it can happen in the afternoon, but it's, it's less likely because there's usually calls and things like that, that I'm, that I'm, that I'm pulled to. Um, so I find that when I supplement, and even if I'm, you know, if I'm just sort of checking in with myself, like what's my perceived, like, you know, rate of exertion, how tired am I? Did I sleep well? Whenever I take some exogenous ketones, I always hit PRs. Like I always feel like a monster. I can get into beast mode really easily. Um, and it's always like, I feel like, you know, there's that scene. I don't know if you're uh, a, a, a comics uh, nerd, but there's this scene in the first Wonder Woman movie where she basically like lifts a truck and she's about to throw mm -hmm. it at like the villain or whatever. Like I literally feel like that in that scene, that I have that kind of power with it, with ketones. Well, I'd say keep doing it then for sure. Are you doing like the esters or the salts? Uh, I'm doing the esters. Uh, so I have played with, I like salts. I like Dom's product, uh, the Audacious, I think it's Audacious Nutrition. Um, mm. uh, his wife had sent me a bunch. I love them. And then I've been playing with the esters as well because I took, I used to take esters years ago and it felt like I, I couldn't stomach them. Like it just tasted like, battery acid. Like it just was awful. Um, but they've, um, there's a company called, um, HVMN or human, I guess. Um, and I really like their product. Like it just, it's, it's still got a little, it maybe feels like you're drinking a little bit of a mixer. Like it still has, you can sort of still taste that bit of alcoholic, uh, kind of, you know, it, it tastes a little bit like you're, you're having a bit of a cocktail at seven in yeah, the morning. Yeah. Uh, but it, but it's, it's not jet fuel. It doesn't feel like you're drinking, you know, battery acid or something. Yeah. They've done a pretty good job making it much more palatable. I mean, when they first sent me a sample, it was like, I, I, I would have to be paid to choke that down. Now <laughs> yes, I'll typically yeah. have like a serving of that prior to a podcast. And it's not, uh, I make a face when I drink it, but it's not, it's not intolerable. Yeah. It's not intolerable. I like that. That I mean, and that's such an improve to be able to say that it's not intolerable. It's such an improvement yeah. than before, you know, it was just awful before. I don't think anybody's claiming they taste good for right. sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, so do you, do you, what do you think about fasted? This is the uh, fasted workouts. This is another question I'm constantly asked. Should I, does it break my fast? What should I have post, you know, post workout? Do, do you train fasted or should you have a meal? I have, I've, I've, I've played with both. I think that my general, my general preference, and this is just an N of one, it's just me. I prefer an empty stomach. I'd like to train on an empty stomach, uh, maybe with some ketones, um, when I've trained with food, uh, you know, assuming I've given myself, you know, 30 minutes or 40 minutes to kind of digest it and, and whatnot, I still feel a bit weighed down. I, I feel like maybe I'm a bit stronger or I have a little bit more in the tank, let's say, but it doesn't always work out for my schedule. So I always kind of come back to the fasted workouts just because I know that I can punch out a workout in the morning. I can get her done, 
and I've done something like I've already, I'm already in momentum that day. What do you think about fasted workouts? Do you have a preference fasted or fed? Um, and if so, is there any, is there anything that you're taking to sort of augment your performance? Yeah, I definitely prefer fasted training as well. I feel like when I used to eat carbohydrates, if I trained fasted, I would feel hypoglycemic and then my workouts would not be optimal. Whereas now that I'm keto, I'll oftentimes, you know, be fasting for 12, 16, 18 hours prior to a workout. And I don't have any issues from a performance standpoint. My energy feels good. I don't have any GI distress, which is a big thing for me. If I eat a large meal, especially if a large percentage of that is coming from dietary fat and protein, which it all is with me being keto, and I eat that within an hour or two of working out, I don't like the way I feel. I have to, I prefer to wait several hours between consum- consumption and training. So from a ease of use standpoint, I prefer to train in the morning fasted. Uh, I've switched my workouts on some of my days to train in the afternoon with my employees. Uh, but I try to get my lunch meal in, like I said, three to four hours prior to that training window. Otherwise it just feels, especially with higher volume and lower body movements, especially if you're training with a good degree of intensity and you just ate a meal, it's probably not going to sit well with your stomach. And what about post workout? There's, you know, I think that I mean, I, I tend to try, I tend to eat some protein immediately after, um, training. I know that there's been, uh, several studies that have sort of alluded to this idea that as long as you're getting in sufficient protein and, uh, carbohydrates, and maybe you might want to comment on that in the, in the post 24 hour window, let's say post training, then there's no need for that you know, 15 minute when, if you're watching me on YouTube, I'm using air quotes, mm-hmm. like there's like that 15 minute window, right. Where you need to get in, you know, that protein and or carbohydrates. What do you think about a post-workout feed? So when I'm in a surplus, I'm getting ample protein and energy and, you know, calories throughout the day. So I'm not really as concerned about my meal timing post-workout. Then when I'm in a deficit as a way to kind of safeguard my bets and just ensure that I'm not becoming catabolic, cause I'll try and eat a good percentage of my calories uh, and protein within about a two hour window of that training session. If I do that, I feel totally, you know, sufficient from a uh, metabolic recovery standpoint within that muscle protein synthesis window. Um, But again, when I'm in a a surplus, I don't really worry about it because I'm eating ample intake within the course of a 24 hour revolving period. When it comes to the carbohydrate consumption post workout, that's not so much an issue with me being fat adapted. I mean, as long as I'm only training once a day, my body is able to replenish muscle glycogen within 24 hours of that training time until my next training window. For a while there, I was doing two days and I did feel a little depleted in that regard. So if for me, if I'm trying to maximize muscle glycogen and get a really good solid pump, when I do train, I don't feel as good if I'm doing two days. Um, so that's why I try and bundle my workouts and either do them all and just try and do them all in a condensed window and then give myself 24 hours before my next training cycle. And then the, um, you know, you mentioned, um, the refeeds that you were initially exposed to in sort of your early, um, early bodybuilding, um, years, is that something that you still ascribe, maybe not necessarily in a cut phase, or maybe, maybe you do it in a cut phase here and there is, do you do any carbohydrate refeeds or is it just like a, we'll call it a keto refeed where you're just bumping up total calories, but you're keeping the macronutrients, uh, the same. Yeah. So when I'm implementing ketogenic caloric refeeds during the last four to six weeks of a cut leading up to the competition uh, and peak week, I'll, I will have a bolus of fat and protein in those meals. Um, but I have not had a refeed from a carbohydrate standpoint in the seven plus years that I've been doing keto. So it's been quite some time since I've had my last carbohydrate meal. I love that. 
I love that. And one of the things that I, um, that I know about you is that of course, uh, from stalking you on, on Instagram <laughs> and I, you know, I watch and part of the reason, I think I mentioned this at the beginning, I reached out to you because my, you had trained my friend, uh, Jamie Seaman, uh, in her, I think it was her first show. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, and you know, you become a new, you become a new father. So what, if anything, has there been any change in perspective, change in training? What have been some of the things that, I mean, your little baby, maybe um, one day will be, you know, your, your workout partner, maybe, but what, has there been any sort of philosophical or mindset shift, you know, when you first see your child um, for the first time and, you know, getting to know him um, and, you know, all his little, and maybe he's too young yet for his true personality to, to come through, but what, if any, have you noticed in terms of the way that you approach things, uh, maybe in your business, cause you're a very successful entrepreneur. We haven't really touched on that yet. Um, and you know, your, your workouts, your approach to nutrition, your approach to life in general. Yeah. So that's, that's a tough question. I mean, my, my little kiddo, there's been so much emotion that's come with his, you know, entrance into the world. Like my wife and I, Crystal, we worked so hard to do everything as natural as possible. And by the book, we were going to do a home birth. We like spent months in preparation, making sure her nutrition was dialed in throughout the pregnancy. And then through some, you know, crazy outside circumstance without any power of our own, we had to do an emergency C-section, which was pretty devastating. But uh, lo and behold, after it was all said and done, you know, he, Rigel, the baby's totally fine. She's having a full recovery. Uh, so just kind of embracing all of those things that we didn't really plan on and making the most of them. But now, you know, at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, he's healthy, she's healthy. And we're, we're just happy to have the family that we do. Uh, as far as workouts go, um, my workouts haven't shifted too, too much. Uh, my wife, Crystal has had to kind of scale back the intensity throughout the C-section recovery. Uh, but she actually was able to train legs for the first time today, post-surgery was able to do squats and felt great doing that. And she's been doing a lot of other stuff, you know, in preparation to, to minimize that recovery time. Um, but that's been kind of tricky figuring out how to work out with a, a baby in the corner. Like the other day we were working out together and he was in the stroller and was just jamming with the music as we were working out. So that was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, just kind of making that a priority. I feel like so many early parents, especially they, they use their kids as skateboats to not do the thing that they want to and need to do in life to maintain and take care of their own self. Uh, so I, I can't imagine that'd be the case for us because working out and just fitness and nutrition in general is such a big part of our lives. So we will maintain that, uh, regardless of his, uh, his introduction to the world for sure. I remember when I was pregnant with my first son and I had like, you know, laminated birth plan. I'm like, this is what I had a midwife. And it was like, this is what's going to happen. And my midwife was like, (laughs) she was like, she kind of like, you could see, she was like, oh, she's one of those, you know, like she thinks that she's going to control everything and she's going to talk, you know, she's going to have the birth plan that she wants. Of course, my birth plan did not go like, did not uh, actualize in, you know, it sounds like the same, um, same sort of situation uh, with you and Crystal. And I think that Children, uh, at least my experience has been that they are literally the best personal development tool uh, and maybe business development tool as well, because they really do mirror uh, and maybe uh, your little guy is just a little bit young yet, but I, I have found that 
all the areas of my life that I needed to really focus on. My children brought up in me. It was like, this is where you need to focus. You need to focus on, let's say, tempering your reaction or trying to figure out, you know, what, what, what the, what the actual issue is here. I remember making, let's like very silly example, but I made a a new dish once. It was like a salmon, something had like a new sauce on it, whatever. And my son was, it was like, I'm not eating this. This is like, this is awful. It looks awful. It smells awful, you know, et cetera. And what the maybe uh, knee jerk reaction for me in the past would have been, well, I'm just an awful mother. Like I'm a terrible mm-hmm. cook. I'm not worthy. Like, you know, this is, this is basically what he's telling me when really it was just my son at that point in his development didn't really do well with surprises, like didn't really do well with transition to something new and not having some runway, you know, to use a word of yours, not having a runway uh, in terms of getting him used to that. And he didn't know how to respond to it. So he's like, no, I'm not having this. So basically he said, well, you, that's, that's what we have tonight. So if you don't, you know, you don't want it, you know, you're not going to eat. And then he ended up coming back, you know, many hours later, trying it and loving it. Um, but it would have been very easy for me in that moment to be like, God, I'm the worst. I'm not, you know, not worthy. I can't even cook a meal for my, you know, when it was really something else that was presenting that way. Um, yeah. And I feel like on that point, you know, like kudos to you for letting enough time pass for him to come back and eat the healthy salmon fish or whatever it was, because like so many parents in that instant would just, you know, succumb to giving them something to make them happy in the moment, but it's not really contributing to their overall health and betterment. So kudos to you there. Thank you so much. Yeah. And it'll be, it'll be interesting to see as you and Crystal navigate through parenthood, what are some of the things that come up for you? Because they're just the most beautiful mirrors. They're the most beautiful mirrors that show you exactly where you need to grow to be able to support them. Like things that were unhealed, maybe for me, at least, you know, unhealed in my past, I needed to kind of get a handle on that because even though it was the past, it was showing up absolutely 100% in the present. And I needed to kind of get a, you know, get ahead of that if I wanted to, you know, break some of the, we'll say, you know, familial patterns uh, that have repeated themselves over, over generations. No, I feel like that. I've I've thought about that quite a bit uh, since having him. And it's like, there's so many things that I really admire in my parents. I've got great parents. I can't ever complain about my parents, but there are certain things that I am excited to be able to do differently for our kids and to just be present and self-aware enough to know that, recognize it and really plan accordingly, I think is, is what parenting is all about. Wonderful. Well, I'm glad to hear that she's uh, she's on the mend and it sounds like you have uh, handled your first big hurdle, which is not having the birth that you had planned for, which can be very devastating and, and you know, taking the appropriate time, let's say, to grieve that, um, but also being able to pivot uh, with ease and grace and not kind of, you know, beating yourselves up about it. It sounds like uh, you both have really, really good heads on your on your shoulders. So I'm excited to see, uh, excited to see how that all pans out. Thank you. Yeah, we're very excited as well. Yeah. So tell us just a little bit about, I mean, we've been talking a lot about nutrition, a lot about fitness. Uh, I didn't really get to to talk about uh, Keto Brick and some of your uh, keto offerings. So tell us a little bit about that product and uh, why it was developed, why you developed it, and then where people could find it if they want uh, more information on it. Yeah. So Keto Brick was kind of like my own brainchild that I developed for my own personal use. Uh, during my 2017 competition prep, which was the the year I got my pro card status. At that time, there was not really any keto food products on the market. And I wanted something that streamlined 
getting a quality dietary fat in my day-to-day meal prep routine. Um, and everything else that was out there, like from a fat bomb standpoint was they would melt. Uh, it just wasn't really convenient or efficient for me. Um, so I set up to create my own shelf stable ketogenic meal replacement bar and the brick was born. Um, and it's basically a thousand calories. It's a shelf stable meal replacement bar. We use uh, cacao butter as the primary fat source. So very high in steric acid. Uh, we have different flavors, but this was basically something that I created alongside my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time. And she was crazy enough to roll up her sleeves and, and dive into this business world with me. But uh, we have since built this business uh, from nothing. We were operating out of our little bitty studio apartment when we had you know nothing to our name. And now we've built it to, uh, we have a pretty massive compound here, a warehouse space. We've kept the production in-house from day one, got several employees now, and we just continue to, to make these things on a day-to-day basis and ship them all over the world. So it's, it was born out of my own desire to create something for myself, but I feel like a lot of other people have found benefit in it. And I just love every aspect of it. That's great. I think that so many entrepreneurs, there's a need or there's a lack that we've identified, let's say in the market. You're like, well, no one else is solving this problem. So I'm just going to get in there and do it myself. So kudos to you for that. And I'll make sure that in the show notes that we have links to, uh, to Keto Brick. Do you have a a favorite flavors or one that you want to, that you want to push or you you love all of them? Uh, I love all of them. I mean, the crown favorite is definitely the chocolate peanut butter cup. That one is our top seller for sure. I kind of like the chocolate malt. Uh, That's my probably personal favorite. Great. All right. Well, we'll make sure that's in the show notes. Robert, this has been so wonderful uh, chatting to you. I think that um, some of the principles that you talk about in bodybuilding, uh, at least for me, I can say that uh, bodybuilding or you know, lifting weights for many years has really changed the way that I live my life. So, you know, in the same way that uh, you know, we we don't lift weights to get I mean, maybe we do a little bit. We lift weights to get better at lifting weights, but I think that we lift weights also to get better at life. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been so many lessons around self-acceptance and, you know, reverence even just for human physiology uh, that I have, uh, that I've garnered over my years of lifting. So I think talking about bodybuilding, talking about building a physique and sculpting a physique, the build and the cut phase, the nutritional considerations, how you might consider doing it differently on a ketogenic diet versus doing it more of the, we'll say, uh, traditional route that many bodybuilders uh, adopt, I think is really exciting. Uh, obviously, I know that you coach women. You've mentioned a couple of them, but again, my friend, Jamie, um, and she took home like what? It was like one, two, and three. Like she took home three yeah. medals. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was just awesome to see. Like I love coaching competitors because like we were talking about earlier, you have to kind of go to this special place in your mind to get to that level of conditioning and just be as strict as you have to be to make the most of that prep. So I feel like I learn so much about what makes people tick when I'm coaching them through that. And I see like into their soul. So being able to watch Jamie go through that prep and help her alongside, you know, alongside her, it's like, I I know her on a deeper level because of that. So I think bodybuilding brings out uh, who we really are. Yes. Well said. Uh, Well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I know this is going to be very valuable for uh, the women and men who listen to this and wishing you all the best. I'm going to pick up some keto brick. I'm going to pick up both of them, the malt and the the peanut butter, the chocolate peanut butter. Can't wait. I will certainly send you some. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. And uh, thanks again for, for the message you're preaching out there. 
All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only.